a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution, he can't accept he lost. Mike Murphy, good to see you, brother. Happy New hey. Year. Happy New Year to you. Well, there he was, the POTUS. He's uh, yes. dropping the malarkey bombs. He's, uh, he's swinging <laughs> yes. the old tire chain. Jolt, and Jolt and Joe, yeah. I'll tell you, he's better at that than at the uh, being the punching bag, which it was last year. So we're seeing yeah. if he's got his uh, his act together here. I want to lead into our, our guest hack with another little bite from a guy who he knows well. Mm-hmm. You think this is about one day in time? A survey from the Brennan Center for Justice in April of 2021 found that one in three U.S. American election officials feel unsafe because of their job. And about 20% listed threats to their lives as a job-related concern. This is not a foreign country. This is the United States of America and our election officials, nonpartisan individuals, Republican, Democrat, fellow Americans are afraid to do their job because they tell the truth. And so, Adisu Demesi, you're probably sitting there thinking, man, that guy should be president of the United States. (laughs) Senator Cory Booker, whose campaign you managed. Uh, All uh, he's got to do is find his lower register and he'll be ready to go. But but he's a big political talent. I've always had a soft yeah. spot for him. And Adisu, it is great to have you here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's honestly great to be back with such esteemed hacks. We are esteemed hacks we're, we're, with the emphasis on hacks. Senator Booker's speech, and we saw the president, we'll play a little bit more of him in a bit, came out slugging right at Donald Trump. I mean, without any 
hesitation. It was a, a new tone. The next day, he, he did it again relative to uh, to Republicans who were opposing his uh, plans. And I'm wondering, you guys, whether this is this Jolton Joe is uh, is here to stay. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that actually January sixth and January seventh were probably two different Joes. I think January sixth. You cannot tell the story of the Capitol insurrection without talking about Donald Correct. Trump and talking yes. about him specifically calling him out for what he did that day and in the lead up to that day. And if the president had had tiptoed around it, it just would not have been a, a fair retelling of history. And in many ways, in my opinion, this was our first opportunity as a country to sort of reflect this is what anniversaries are. They're commemorations of history and to reflect upon what that day meant. And the president was trying to tell the truth. At much like his predecessor would not. And so I think that was the right thing to do that day. I think whether this is a more combative tone that the president takes in an election year and what have you, I don't know. I think he's just willing to sort of. Well, let, let's put it this way. Should he? Yeah, I think he has to call out be, the behavior when it is uh, when it is as egregious as what the Republicans have been doing and what the former president you know, did. And I think ultimately, Yes, it is a it is good political strategy. I think the the challenge is he was elected per, specifically to turn the page on the Trump era. And the more we talk about yesterday, the less we're talking about tomorrow, the less we're talking about the economy, the less we're talking about mm -hmm. what he's done. And so there's a balance. I know that's like a cop out answer, but uh in days like January 6th and times when you know Kevin McCarthy is doing Kevin McCarthy things in the House, or Mitch McConnell is doing Mitch McConnell things in the Senate. Yeah, call it out by name. But focusing on Donald Trump, focusing always on fighting Republicans is almost explicitly not what he was elected to do. So you have to be careful. I think a couple things came together. One, he had a bad political year last year, particularly the second half of it. And the larger narrative, he was looking weak like a bystander. And most of his problems legislatively, you can argue, were the Republicans who didn't want to play bipartisan ball in anything other than infrastructure. On the other hand, the Build Back Better thing was so huge, it's hard for a fiscal conservative to support it. So he was kind of jammed up there, but he was, he was getting chased around and not treated with a lot of respect by the progressives in the House, who kind of treated him like an old obstacle kind of in a way to the people's revolution. So the narrative became weakness. Now it's an election year. He, he needs to go fight it out, which means you better be on offense, not defense. Otherwise, you know, you're a spectator to your own party fighting each other, which Democrats seem to love to do. You know, Republicans, especially of late, were often stupid, but we march forward with sharp sticks no matter what. So I think I think using the spark plug of January 6th and, as Adisu says, the legitimate need to talk about what really happened, that it wasn't just a partisan slappy fight. It's real, and it's a threat to the democracy. What it was, sedition, and Trump is culpable. It was time to take off the gloves, and stylistically, I like Biden in a fight a lot better than Biden on the sidelines. So he can't fight every day. He's the president of the United States, but he needs to frame this year as something other than his own party's inability to pass his legislation. So it was a good change-up. In the second speech, he even reached into the lead box and dropped a malarkey bomb. So now we know <laughs> he's serious. And uh, with the right mix, but plenty of this, because it's an election year, it's more about the issues you're framing to fight over than it is about the closure motion in the Senate. I would be careful of big legislative ambition this year if I were them. I'd use that to frame the battle to go win at the ballot box with the voters making a choice. I agree with both of you guys. First of all, I don't think he can be fighting with Donald Trump every day uh, because people want the president of the United States to be working on the things that are 
most concerning in their lives. They want to see them uh, out there on the virus. They want to see him out there fighting inflation and supply chain issues. They want to see him doing stuff that relates uh, to their lives. On the other hand, you're absolutely right, Murphy. If this becomes, if January, if November, whatever the election day is, if that day is only report card day for Joe Biden. No, it's a disaster. Democrats are going to get their asses kicked, not because he hasn't gotten stuff done. He has gotten a lot done, including that infrastructure bill uh, you mentioned. But, you know, unless things change relative to uh, inflation, relative to the virus, and even if they do, you know, incumbents always get their butts kicked to some degree in the midterms because that's the day people come out to complain about what they don't exactly. like. Yep. And so he needs to make it about something else. And the biggest and most important thing uh, is is Donald Trump and the sort of anti-democratic uh, uh, thrust of Republicans. And uh, yes, he had to talk about it on January 6th, because as Adisu said, you cannot tell the story without talking about the months and months and months that that uh, that Donald Trump primed the pump for just what happened on January 6th. And he's still doing it. Yeah, I agree with all that. But part of the pivot in Biden's remarks between the two speeches was a shift to kitchen table economics and to a theme which isn't about Trump, the do nothing Republican Senate. There's some gold there. My theory is Biden had a had a Scrooge moment over the holidays. He woke up in a terrible nightmare and he looked in the mirror and he was wearing a 70s suit with wide lapels. And he said, <laughs> oh, holy shit, I'm Jimmy Carter. I got to blow up this narrative and go define myself by the fights I pick. And fighting the do-nothing Republican Senate for, for, for his you know, positioning is a much better place to be in than the the guy who can't do anything is getting whipped around. So a great spark plug, as I said for it, is the sixth. And as much as I want leg irons and show trials uh, on, on January 6th, I'm a fanatic about it. It is defined out there a lot as a partisan process issue. So he needs to score what he can on that and get back to kitchen table economics and the Republicans are in the way of the middle class, which he hinted in speech too. Let me ask you guys a question. We're, we're uh, recording this uh, Monday night, but Tuesday the presidents could be headed to Atlanta to talk about voting rights. How do you tell the story of this fight over voting rights without reprising some of what he said uh, on Thursday in that uh, January 6th speech because all of these changes that are being made around the country, all of these moves on election laws are predicated on the same big lie. They're predicated on this idea that somehow this last election was dishonest and in order to protect, and they're all called election integrity bills, to protect the integrity of an election that had plenty of integrity uh, uh, you know, the last election, that, that we need to restrict voting and we need to hand to legislatures the ability to overrule lo- local election authorities. Uh, this is another page in Donald Trump's uh, uh, plan, as it were, and will be, uh, if, you know, if the last election was uh, demonstrably clean because we've had more reviews of it than any election in history, uh, the next election is going to be very suspect if uh, politicians are allowed to shove election officials around 
even more overtly than we saw in 2020. So how do you tell that story without going after Trump again? Uh, it's going to be hard. I, I would be shocked if he doesn't, you know, at least reference January 6th again. But also you can talk about January 5th, right? And uh, what happened in Georgia just the day before that uh, changed the course of history in a lot of ways. But ultimately, look, I, I think what the president is, he's using the bully pulpit. This is this is textbook bully pulpitism, right? He can set the agenda. He is setting the agenda for what we think is going to be a vote in the Senate potentially <laughs> next week on this bill that we all believe is in trouble, right? Nobody, nobody, I think is voting poly- the voting rights, the bill. voting rights bill. We don't, you know, no one's Pollyannish about what is is going to happen here. But what he can do is define the problem, and you can do that both in the context of January 6th, as he did last week, but I think you can do it outside the context of January 6th in the way you just, you just talked about. This is about systematically undermining our democracy at the administrative level, at the legislative level, it's happening in a coordinated way in Georgia. It happened, you know, last year about this time or with the bill that passed in Texas and you name it, pretty much every state has had, uh, has had some kind of uh, rollback of what you said. Every, every state that's controlled by the Republicans. That's controlled by the Republicans, right? And, and I think it's incredibly important for, to, for the president and the vice president to say what you just said, an election that by any measure was an enormous success in the midst of a pandemic. The, the most scrutinized election in history. in history. And to be fair, Republicans won a ton. Right. But the only thing they didn't win was the presidency because Donald Trump is a loser and the president doesn't and vice president don't necessarily need to say that last bit, but they need to define. He's been calling them the defeated president, (laughs) which is a nice bit of. of, Yeah, he can can needle him without doing it. But I but again, I think the speech on Tuesday is about defining the problem that is happening and that is going to affect our democracy and setting the, the table, I think, for the stakes for the 2022 election, which I think might actually be. American democracy. So it's clearly, you know, democracy week at the White House. Day four, we go to Atlanta. And I think they're making a mistake not going to Atlanta. And I think the the rhetorical approach that DC is talking about is right and it'll, it'll be good politically, particularly in the Democratic coalition. But they're letting the Republicans get away with the idea of election integrity. And one of my favorite things to do in my campaign life, particularly in, in purple states or even blue states, is go play on the Democratic backfield a little. There's no reason Biden can't say that every legitimate vote ought to be counted and overwhelming votes are all legitimate. But, you know, we have one problem and I'm going to grab election integrity because my watchstone is every American vote that's legitimate mm-hmm. ought to be counted. And that is the absentee ballot stuff. And here's the problem, because I'm in California where we the Republicans invented mail in absentee ballots. I'm all for it. But we during the pandemic, we loosened it up a lot appropriately. But we have never gotten the act together where the states, now that we basically mail everybody in many places absentee ballots, check the database between states. That's the problem with 50 states. So I can go register in Colorado, register here in L.A., and very easily vote twice by mail because there's no common registry. Let us alert the Colorado authorities about what you just said. I don't want to. <laughs> That's why I, I have my backup vote in Michigan and my, my seven votes in Cook County. So I'm covered. <laughs> but the point is Biden could own that. He could call for national legislation to have one integrity database. And now he's on offense on integrity and everybody has to write. Yeah, but, but the, the problem with that, Mike, is that it presupposes Presupposes I, I, you know, I, I like the jujitsu and everything. I, it presupposes that. Uh, I mean, the, the premise of that is that somehow, with this absentee voting, was 
fraud and there's no there's absolutely no evidence of well that. no the, it's been, there, there's tiny tiny fraud but there's always tiny tiny insignificant right, fraud but there's no evidence that uh that the absentee ballots uh, yielded uh uh significant or even meaningful fraud so so i don't know that i'd want to i'd want to certify that you, when you let the republicans own fraudulent you give them a long leash. I, I think the point is, you, I, I thought you were going somewhere else because this is fraudulent. <laughs> what they're doing is fraudulent. Calling an election dishonest that has been certifiable. I, I mean, know, I know. I, I that get is it, but you know. That is fraudulent. It is the temperament of the Democrats to want to give a civics lesson, even when they're right, and wait for a New York Times editorial to approve it. And out in the bare-knuckle world of disinformation and Fox News and everything, given integrity away, which on every poll is an 80 percenter, and the Republicans have that without challenge, without going backwards to debate the last election, so if you're a Trump voter, you're illegitimate, and just call as president for a system that's unimpeachable of some offense, I just think politically puts them in a better place. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Well, hackaroos, we're going to break all the rules here because that's what we do. And instead of a normal ad, we're going to tell you about a love story, a political consultant, and a box sent to him by UPS. David, pick it up from here. You, that's completely true. In fact, we're recording this late at night, and I can't wait to get back to my Helix mattress. Helix is one of our valued sponsors, and they sent us mattresses to try out. And I got to tell you, I did it out of obligation. Now I'm in love. Love my mattress. It's the best mattress I've ever had. Let us tell you why. You know, it is amazing, folks. He's not kidding. It's like the old Jack Benny joke. David, your mattress or your life. I'm thinking. <laughs> so here's the story with the Helix mattress. It is a high-tech miracle of mattress technology because you take an online quiz. It takes two or three minutes. What kind mm -hmm. of sleeper are you? Right side, left side, firm, not firm, hot or cold. They have cooling technology. They have all this mattress high-tech ability to tailor the mattress to your results on the sleep quiz. So once you've done that, Shazam, they send it to you, and you even get this sci-fi thing. In fact, the night it or day it arrives, rent the original blob because you open the thing, and David, you should explain this, and it comes to life and expands out. Yeah, it comes in a box uh, wrapped in plastic. You cut the plastic, and this thing expands, and you think, how could this be the, this great mattress I'm expecting? And after a while, there it is. Uh, and it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, everybody's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mine's a medium. Mattress is great for cooling you down. If you sleep hot, mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, of which I have many, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix quiz, and I was matched with my model because I wanted something that felt medium, and I sleep on my side and my back. I move around quite a bit. Okay, TMI, TMI. You, uh, you love the mattress. Um, no, man. I'm a man of a certain age. I think it's, it's fine. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> the other miracle of this thing is you don't have the guys carry the store mattress up the stairs and wipe out everything on the walls because it's so impossible <laughs> to load. So, look, here's the deal. Don't just take our word for it. Hell, we're politicians. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ 
and the difficult-to-please editors of Wired magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. We, and we should mention, Mike, they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. I can tell you that. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. So all you got to do, and do it now because Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. So just do it. Go to helixsleep.com slash hacks, helixsleep.com slash hacks, and get the gift of the mattress that changed David Axelrod's life. You got that right. Adisa, you you may smack me down on this. I react less viscerally to the voter ID issue. And and weirdly, you look at polling and and the majority of African-Americans, for reasons that were explained to me, and you could explain it better, also agree with that, in part because I think their feeling was if we've got identification, they can't screw with us. But I think that's a bad battleground to fight on. I think the battleground that has to be fought is this notion that we're going to replace in the city of Atlanta the Board of Elections yeah, I agree. If, we don't, if we don't like what they're doing. Or the state legislature is going to appoint electors, you know, because they thought that Fulton County was mean to them or whatever. Voter restrictions are bad. Voter suppression should be stopped. But voter nullification is the end of democracy. Yeah. I And I think that's, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it feels like we could be headed there. Maybe not this year, but in two years, if we don't do something. We, you saw the Post report, 163 people running, running uh, who believe in the big lie, yeah. who are running for Offices that oversee like local elections. clerks Lo- and secretaries of yeah, state. And that is a huge, huge problem. I can tell you from the Republican time machine back in the 88 campaign with uh, George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole, both clients of mine at various times. One of the big problems we found out in the inside the party was many of the bodies in the local caucuses, the actual bodies you'd send in the convention or the people in the in the parties who would you know, operate the system, we're all Pat Robertson people. And if you ever got to a third ballot in the convention, all the Dole and Bush delegates would drop the button and put on a Robertson. So, you know, people are policy and packing the system, which very few people do the effort to be part of uh, with, with people with wild-eyed ideas is a huge problem. The other thing is, if I were Biden, I would say, well, we fight this out right now, tomorrow, let's pass the uh, legislation to update the Electoral College because the Electoral College is a very confusing, ambiguous law. You talked about the Electoral Count, the Electoral, the Electoral Count, Count Act. Yeah, I don't remember the exact. Yeah. yeah, and it's murky. It is, you know, you're yeah. waving whale bones at the sun to break a time. <laughs> it is crazy 1880s stuff. And we got to clean that up because it leaves a huge hole for bad actors to make trouble. And that could pass, I think. The fear, Adisu, is that. Uh, and you hear it from a lot of Democrats, this is where Manchin is gravitating, uh, that somehow this this will be the sum total of what the United States yeah, does. And, and of course, McConnell has said, oh, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's do that. And that and that'll take care of it. And that doesn't. I agree that we should do something about that. But does that address the, all the issues that we've been talking about until now? No. And I do want to address quickly 
David, the point about voter ID, which yeah. I, di I disagree with, but I get the point, which I think it kind of mirrors the immigration debate we've been having in this country for two decades, which is you got to be for border security, which everybody is for, before you liberalize the immigration system by path to citizenship and what have you. And I think Mike has a point that like, can we figure out what the border security of voting rights is so that mm -hmm. we get some credibility with the, right. the the middle, I suppose, so that we can do what I think is the more important pieces of this, which is protect democracy and, and, and voter suppression. I, there's a political strategy in there that I think makes a ton of sense and that could make a ton of sense for the White House. But I think ultimately <laughs> the problem is the barbarians are at the gate and it, and, you know, and I think that's how Democrats feel. That's definitely how I feel. And it becomes, existential i think that's how that's how most mm -hmm. democrats who live in this space feel that this is an existential fight and we shouldn't be nibbling at the margins with with no offense to the electoral count act which is major we need to do something big or Maybe, else yeah this could be the end of the american experiment i'll, I'll give you the <laughs> other argument from the inside but sympathetic to the cause from the outside i, I keep saying because i've become such a crank because republicans over january 6 and other stuff have just driven me into madness that you are you are always a crank man you're just well a crank I'm, about I, this I, I'm, I'm a real crank now <laughs> um i'm a i'm a crank for democracy but the democratic party at this moment in time is far too important to be left to the democrats the republican way to look at this thing which may be brutally pragmatic and i agree emotionally but pass the electoral college thing right now and then campaign against the Republicans on the other stuff to win seats and get the Senate, you know, win the political battle rather than make the last stand with the guitars and the tears and lose again. You know, if you don't have the votes, the votes you have are to at least put a barbarian fence up right now in the Electoral College, which is not enough. But it is enough to say, look, we could do one thing, but now McConnell shut us down, do nothing Senate. And then you got a war to take to the ballot, which is a good war, particularly in an off year where you want turnout and intensity. Yeah, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that the activists in Georgia, the ones who aren't showing up to the president and vice president's event on Tuesday, they're done with this. And if you're representing those communities, though, and your job is to defend their right to vote and you feel like they're not going to be able to vote in this election because of what's happening, it's hard to say, oh, let's play by these new rules and try to. No, and, no. And, but, but here's my question to you, because I saw the fact that there are people who aren't going to show up who said and some of them are my friends yeah, uh, who said uh, we're not we're not we're not going to show up because un unless you come with something more than words in hand unless you come and tell us this is what's going to happen well he can't okay he can't oh, the, the the bottom line i i don't understand this i don't understand the uh I understand the, the feeling that this is an existential crisis. I understand the frustration, but what is it that they expect him to do? How, if, if, if Joe Manchin or, Chris, or Kristen Sinema refuse to change the filibuster, what, what do they think he can do to make them do it? I think the number one thing is change his position on filibuster reform. That at least would be a step to, which again, may not change Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema's position, but that is, I think at least step one. And until, until you know, they believe that he's bringing a butter knife to a gunfight, you know, worse than a spoon to a gunfight uh, when you're not willing to address the rules issue. And I get it. They're playing their role, right? This is the other thing Like you're talking about. I think what Mike is talking about, is right, which is a political strategy for governance, but the activists are playing a role too. They're trying to pull 
they're trying to pull the president. They're trying to pull the country towards their position. So everyone is running in their lane. The president, vice president are going to do what they got to do with the bully pulpit. The activists are going to make their point by not showing up. And, you know, that's politics, right? Not everybody has to be on team. It totally is. And I totally get it, but it's a bar fight. There's no middle ground where I'm going to participate in one out of four punches. You pick a side (laughs) and you're in it. Yeah. And by saying, well, we're, we're going to defeat everything that's bad by sitting out and being unhappy while our guy is beat to death because uh, our guy I, isn't doing it our way is it's in practical politics. That's that's a gift to the Republicans. I totally hear you. And it's I mean, this is the ultimate curse of the fake majority that we have in the Senate. Yeah. Right? Like, no, I mean, it's, it's like the, horrible. If, if, if it were 51, 49 the other way, like we would have none of this. But the appearance of a majority, which it is not a majority. <laughs> Chuck Schumer is the majority leader, but he has 50 votes. Right. And Kamala Harris, when she 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 comes up to the hill. But the appearance of control is what's creating all these tensions. And I think, I think David, ultimately you're right. Like the president can only do so much. He's doing the best he can. He's using the bully pulpit. He's I'm sure cajoling and twisting arms, him and his staff and everybody is doing it. But ultimately that's not enough for the people. And I, and I respect it. And I deeply understand it who feel like they're getting the shit kicked out of them every day on the ground. I think that he may, will know by the time people hear our voices, uh, the facts will have outstripped our brilliant analysis here, and he may he may go far uh, farther on the filibuster down in Georgia than he's ever gone before. It's very clear that he has uh, kind of reached the end of his his rope on that. And but uh, he can't move Mansion. You know, Mansion's going to say, "Oh, you're mad at me again." Ooh, my point scary. is, if if you say if if what you say if what you say as a Democrat is unless you produce a victory on this, we are not going to be for you. That is stupid. Okay. That is destructive. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, you know, we just, there were a group of Democrats I saw, uh, and, and I appreciate they're playing their role. They should play their role. They're advocates. And this is an existential issue. It's just when you get to the last place, the last piece of it, which is to say, and so you're done. You're dead to me. You're going to get something worse on the on the back. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a bunch of, uh, of of people from the left who, in a piece in the uh, in Politico last week, said we're going to be looking for a candidate to run in a primary against Joe Biden. Well, we don't know if Joe Biden's going to be running, but they said, you know, he's not progressive enough. And it's like, do they not understand what's going on here and what no, the stakes, they stakes are going to be in 2024 and what he's up against right now? I mean, look, I've been critical of Biden. I, I'm, I may yet in this hour. Uh, but uh, but I, I, you know, I, I get tired of people who aren't living in, in the real world. Yeah, part of it's a bluff, too. This is very against conventional wisdom. But we used to live this life in the old Republican Party because our hardcore right wing was always we're holding our breath. We're not going to support. We're not going to turn out. We never lost an election because of turnout collapse, because in the end, people line up. The biggest problem in American politics on both sides, it started with the Republicans, but now it's infected the Democrats, is we treat our base voters like swing voters. And, and, you know, they're base voters for a reason. They're highly reliable in the end to be on the side they've always been on. But all the attention is this this whole kabuki. Th- I remember laughing out loud at the convention when it was uh, Hillary versus Obama. 
And it was clear Obama was going to win. But all the media commentary was talking to angry female delegates. I'm not, I'm a Hillary delegate. I hate, I'm never going to turn out, you know, I'm going to go home, even though I'm a Democrat party convention delegate, you don't get more Democrat than that. But, oh no, I'm so, unless I'm not going to bullshit. So sometimes you got to break those eggs and it's very painful. But if, if Biden wants to not have a primary, there's a simple tonic for it, political success. Uh, if he's being chewed to death and, and, and all that, he will get a primary if he runs. If he runs. Time to pay the meter, but we will be right back. Now, let's hear from our sponsor. You know, X, a lot of people didn't even make resolutions this year. And you know what? I get it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still find a way to shake things up, whether it's by switching up your workout routine. That's what I'm going to do. Try you one. better. Or going someplace new. Whatever way you challenge yourself this year, there's no better way to do it than with a pair of the miraculous Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. They're, they really are good. A pair fell off the truck here. And uh, we got them at the podcast, and I've been fooling around with them. They look, feel, and sound better than ever. There's also this cool new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings so you can take the Raycons with you wherever you go and kind of switch it on and off. You've got those great gel tips for the perfect inner fit, which is so important. And the earbuds are super comfortable. They will not budge. Trust me, even when you're out fighting crazy people in politics, they stay put. Plus, the battery life is tremendous, which I care about because I don't want to have to stick them in a charger when I'm listening to something. Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And they're priced just right. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. You know, 32 hours, I can get through two Gibbs answers. (laughs) he's not here cheap political trick hit him that really is but he'll hear about it it's no wonder raycon's everyday earbuds have over forty-eight thousand five-star reviews so here's what you got to do right now join the raycon nation and get the listener 15 percent discount off the raycon order when you go online you go to buy raycon.com slash hacks that's buy raycon.com slash hacks to save 15 percent on raycon's by Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash hacks. So here's a strategic question that you guys hinted at before, which is how do you create risk for voters in electing Republicans and electing a Republican Congress? in the fall. How do you set that dynamic up? Uh, And and let me just uh, add one thing to it. Uh, Today, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker-in-waiting, did uh, an interview with Breitbart in which he said he will will remove Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and Ilhan Omar from committees. And, you know, he gave he gave a rationale for these things, but the under, you know, the unspoken thing was, you, you know, you take two of ours, we're going to take three of yours, we'll reinstate ours, you started it, now we're going to, f- and basically, you know, for, you know, you know, the audience he was talking to, Murphy, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, uh, you know, it, it follows in the pattern of Trump vengeance politics, um, and, the question is, if you're a suburban voter, 
is that what you want to vote for? Do you want to vote for, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy uh, lifting up Marjorie Taylor Greene, lifting up uh, Gosar, who threatened to kill uh, uh, AOC? Uh, do you want to see him throw a guy, Adam Schiff uh, off of his committees? Do you, is that, yeah. is that, is that uh, how you want to? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just positing this. I'm looking. I'm looking for theories here. Among the NPR crowd, yeah, he already got most of them. Uh, I'd be in the meat and potatoes world, not Washington process. And there's a lot not to like about Omar and some of those. But no, I'm not for squelching members other than real kooks like, you know, Taylor Green. I, I think they should have been in a year long bumper sticker fight. People understand about child care credits you know, get relevant out there and not mm -hmm. triangulate among people mm -hmm. nobody have heard of who are all Washington assholes. So I think there's very little in that. Their base will love it. You know, you know the, the tweed jacket and suede patches part of the Democratic base will love it, and they can tune in to my beloved MSNBC and hear about it every day. But out there in regular voter land, I think it's meat and potatoes, middle-class economics, and the Republicans are against it. I could not agree more. I think ultimately... I think we do have to nod to the NPR crowd or whatever you want to call it, because ultimately we need them to turn out. Those are their influencers there. There's all sorts of reasons to do it. But ultimately, we need, you know, and I should say, we also need to, to your earlier point, David, make this election in November a choice, not a referendum on Biden, because that never works out well for the incumbent president in the first midterm. Right. So, so to that end, yes, when Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell do st crazy stuff, as I said before, we can use that as emblematic of what a Republican led Congress is going to be. And people remember it wasn't that long ago that um, that we were there, you know, and they were doing crazy stuff with Obama fiscal cliff and what have you. But but what Murphy said is like a million percent true in my mind. Joe Biden was elected to put this country to to turn the page on the Trump era and get us back to normal, whatever that was post pandemic. And if he can deliver on that, and if he can credibly make the case that at the very least we are making progress on that for people's pocketbooks, for people's yeah. health and public health, et cetera, we will have at least a chance in November. The history is against us, but we'll have at least a chance. You make a compelling argument, but you completely impeach yourself when you say Murphy was a million percent right, because <laughs> Murphy has never been a million percent. That's fair. Uh, That's fair. right. I was a million percent right when it meet the press way back in 2007, after a roundtable, I pulled Carville aside, who had to defend Hillary, and I said, you realize Obama's going to beat her and be probably the next president? And to James's credit, he said, yeah, if that horse gets out of Iowa, it'll never stop running. So All that was right. the one time I was a million percent no, right. No, I agree Often with you. You wrong. were then. You were then. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, stop I clock, called you, you know? and I told you about it. You're, yes, you did. You were only 800,000% on board at that point because it was a hard <laughs> campaign. But here's the thing. You're right, and one of the problems with these big omnibus bills yes. is that um, no one knows what's in them. So we haven't had a fight over child care. Right. We haven't had a fight over pre-K. Because it was too big, too greedy, too confusing. Yeah. We just have a fight over this big, hulking dirigible right. that right. is this uh, Build Back Better bill. So that, you know, that's it. And I don't know how you get onto uh, that successfully. Here, you know, there are, uh, Mandy Grunwald and Saul Shore uh, just started this group called Stop Him Now. And their theory is Republicans should go right at Trump and say a vote for, a uh, Democrat should say a vote for, if you elect these Republicans, you are empowering Trump, you're encouraging Trump, Trump will come back and so on. I don't know if that's the exact right thing, but I will say this. 
I do think that you talk about the things that scare the shit out of people. Most of them have to do with Trump. And is there is there a way strategically to get him into this mix in a way that that motivates voters? There is because he'll put himself in the mix. But boy, I think uh, Saul and Mandy ought to spend more time hanging around Terry McAuliffe. Uh, because I think Terry's on the that, board of their uh, on their uh, well, of that's their pack. PTSD. We uh, we I'm with the DSU. Elections are about the future. So if I'm Biden, I like vote for me. You're finally going to get a child tax care credit, and the Obamacare won't be sunk. And by the way, the democracy will survive. Or you know, Trump was really a jerk a couple of years ago. For most people, Trump has receded into the murky swamp of the Republican Party. So you know who cares about Trump? Republican primary voters and Democratic primary voters. And, you know, going into this kind of this therapy need to bang on Trump because Democrats resonate to it. I love it myself, but I don't think it moves the needle. And I think I think the uh, the forward looking stuff would be better for the Dems. I don't know the answer to this. I honestly posit it. I'm like puzzling in my own mind about it. I think we do have to run both, but I, I'm obviously with my Mike, as I said before. But I, I think there's a I, where I disagree with what Mike said earlier is I, I do think we may have a turnout problem, Democrats, this November, if we don't make the credible case to our base, both our, you know, and our bases, moderate black people and, you know, as well as liberal white, you know, uh, progressives in urban, urban environments. If we don't make the the case to them that we were successful <laughs> people, you know, we, we all put so much on the line. We being the base of the democratic party for four years, resistance and hats and money up the wazoo and just every for four years to, to get this chance that we have right now. And we have to credibly be able to say we did something with it. Or I actually think that people will, you know, could stay home. And so I say all that to say, I do the, the flip side of that is, if we can't make that case as credibly as we may want to, the specter of Trump helps with our base, but it does not help. I agree with what Mike said. I don't think it helps nearly as much with the swing voters that are going to decide this, the Senate in Georgia and Nevada and New Hampshire, as we may think. I would agree with you on that. Biden and Democrats have to be able to say they did something. It isn't helpful when you have a bunch of Democrats running out, running around out there saying you haven't done anything. Yep. Yeah, because he's done a lot. Like that. You know, yeah, no, he's done uh, the a infrastructure lot. thing's historic. The problem is they set up this massive dirigible Hindenburg thing, as David said, and now they're totally they're totally measured by their success as something they can't succeed at because they don't have the votes. You know, Manchin was right to the progressives. Hey, next time win more elections. You know, and here we are. And when Biden, you know, has to go through another one of these ringers, it just weakens them. But I get the. I get the pressure. I get the worry about turnout, particularly in an off-year election where Democrats have more turnout problems than ours do in a smaller electorate. But I'm just telling you, I, I, I agree with much of what you guys said. I am not as convinced as you that, uh, and, and I, well, one reason I agree with you guys is because where Democrats are losing ground is with working class Democrats, not just white, but Black minority and, as well. You know, definitely. And yeah. so you have to be able to say, hey, we are working on sh- stuff that relates directly to your concerns and we are making some progress and this is the progress we're making and we'd be making more progress if you know one one of the problems with the whole mansion phobia of the democratic party is that 50 republicans opposed all of those bills 50 republicans and so and they got off scot-free because everybody's focusing their ire on uh, on joe mansion I, I still don't know that they're not going to get i still 
wonder whether they're not going to get something, some portion of that bill yeah. back better. Oh, they bill, will. They will. But it ought to be Biden's idea. He ought to whack it and lead the parade and declare victory rather than be dragged through dental surgery billion by billion. If Biden continues to stumble, if he appeases the activists more and they're still unhappy, so their tactics are rewarded, blah, blah, blah. Who is the progressive who primaries him? Let's do a little <laughs> horse race here. Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting. In, in, in that story, the names were not exa- would not exactly keep Biden awake at night, Marion Williamson and people like that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody believed that Bernie uh, Sanders yeah. was going to do it or Elizabeth Warren was going to do it or, no, or yeah. any, any, any It'll you know, be no, front it would, line. Nobody credible. Nobody it's just credible. The, but it's just the, the whole notion is sort of irritating, you know, because Biden is in sort of trench warfare with the Republican Party right now and has, as Adisu says, you know, a really weak hand in Congress with a 50-50 Senate. And these guys are acting like like he has a magic wand and that he can just or, ordain yeah, there I agree. Goes. I'm old. I'm old enough to remember when we had 60 votes in the Senate. Could barely get stuff. Passed. Believe me, I was there. I, I was, was going to say some people. I was some there. People on this call I'm old enough that. to remember John Ashcroft primarying Richard Nixon because he wasn't, you know, a conservative. That'll show him. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. You know, X, we've done it again. We broke a huge story here in the what is it? investigative journalism we're known, known for. Most coffee oh, yeah. is dull, stale, and questionably sourced. Which you might say about some other podcasts I know, but move on. <laughs> True indeed. But look, it's easy to get stuck in a rut and drink what you always have. I mean, if you don't have a path to change it up, you're going to be stuck there. Of course, so yeah. instead of standing in front of all the options in your grocery store, way too many to figure out, let Trade Coffee help you find something new to love. Exactly. Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. And whether you're a coffee nerd or just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing method. You know that trade expert hasn't slept for 11 days. Take the coffee quiz to get started. Trade Coffee guarantees you will love your first bag or they will replace it for free. No charge to you. Trade's been featured by the New York Times, Wired, GQ, and has delivered, get this, over 5 million bags of coffee. People use and love Trade. The subscription is no hassle. Skip shipments, change your frequency, or you can cancel it at any time. So listen to this for our listeners right now. Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash hacks. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash hacks and start your journey to your perfect cup. So go online, take the quiz, get the perfect cup of coffee. That's drinktrade.com slash hacks for $20 off your first three bags. All right, let's do a quick Senate thing because we've gotten a little bit of clarity here. First of all, New Hampshire, where the Dems were worried about semi-popular Governor uh, Sununu running. He opted not to run. But now Chuck Morris, who's kind of a generic Republican, but a Paul, 
head of the state Senate is running. Uh, my friend Dave Carney and his wonderful wife, uh, Lauren, are running the race. That, that, he's not Sununu, but that race, if he wins the primary. Against Senator you know, Hassan. Yeah, yeah, against Senator. And will he uh, win the primary? Most likely. You know, he's the establishment guy, but he can put on a red hat. Carney knows how to do that. But if you read the announcement stuff, uh, it's interesting because their process argument is he's a government guy. He's been a town lead, you know, boom, 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 not crazy Trumpy. And I think in New Hampshire, they can still muscle through. So that was kind of interesting development there worth watching. And then John Thune in South Dakota, who had kind of leaked he wasn't going to run. And to his credit, he's taken a few kitten swipes at Trump which is what passes for courage in the GOP these days. He, he's a favorite of McConnell's, could be leader one day. He's back. He's in, uh, yeah. which was interesting, I thought. And I think part of his barometer is that maybe the Trump thing won't last forever because he would be an unacceptable leader for Trump. And then, you know, uh, you know we'll see how that one works out. And then, um, well, uh, Johnson, in Wisconsin, Johnson. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, reliable knucklehead. Uh, 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 <laughs> He's taking some kitten Johnson swipes, uh, some more than kitten swipes at democracy. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a fan. But he's been remarkably resilient for a chucklehead uh, in a state that's reliably purple. And so, yeah. you know, I think this could be the time he broke his two-term pledge. You know, he's one of these guys, I'm going to go fight the Washington demon no more than two terms. And then third term rolls around. You know, the demon's doing so well. That unfortunately, I'm going to have to stick with the free haircuts. I've been so unsuccessful for the last 12 years that I need six more. Right. I'd I'd love to come back to Rhinelander in my hardware store, but no, I'm going to have to stay here at K Street in the steakhouses for six more painful years. What, what what's really interesting is he you know he's a hundred percent Trumpy hundred and ten he he is an election denier he uh, he just you know he tried to reframe. January 6th. And uh, I think he maybe was a purveyor of the Antifa themes and so on. I mean, he's 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 thoroughly in that camp. But McConnell concluded that he was their best chance. Right. uh, Because he is an incumbent. He does have a record of winning. Um, Interesting, you know, race setting up the lieutenant governor Mandela Barnes is the front runner there. Uh, I think Republicans believe he's too far left. Right. Uh, to win that race. But he's he's generating a lot of enthusiasm. But listen, that is a 50 50 state. We saw it again in the presidential election. If, in fact, this is a Republican year, as it feels like it may be, uh, yeah. you're going to you know, that is a state where you would feel it. Yeah, I, I think he would lose and it'll come down to Biden's numbers and if biden's numbers are bad i think he'll win and right now they're not good in yeah Wisconsin. no election held today i think he'd survive you also have a governor's race where the governor is in in some probably Trouble. some yeah. peril there yeah. so i mean you would have to if you know none of my uh friends in the democratic party will like me saying this but if you were sitting here today you'd have to say republicans have a pretty good chance of yeah. taking they, they they're they're i think they're very strongly favored to take the house I think they've got a decent chance to take the Senate as well. Joe Biden may be looking at a Republican House and Senate in 2023. It's all going to come down to can Biden get a favorable backup or not, and yeah. then they're in the hunt in the Senate. If not, it's trouble because they have some advantages. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying before, which is deliver, make the case, You know, talk meat and potatoes, talk about how things have gotten better over the course of two years, hopefully they will have gotten better than they feel right now in the midst of Omicron. And you have a better environment, a better, you know, uh, more favorable outlook to the president. And at least 
a chance for our Senate candidates and our House candidates in these swing districts to. I've got some hope for the Senate, really. I think because I think Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are. Yeah, Pennsylvania's the interesting one. We may have a real kook there. It depends if McCormick can win the primary. Yeah. It, and, and, Johnson's a kook too, right? So you might have two kooks against two in a kooky year. My friend John Godier used to always say about a lot of candidates with Trump, crazy times demand a crazy president. So (laughs) I I, I do take a corollary, though, to your analysis of DSU. I agree with it, but I would not say deliver first. I would say pick the right fights that people understand first. And if they do that and deliver some stuff, then then there'll be his numbers will go up. One thing that we learned when I was, was there in some pretty tough years is you cannot tell people what they don't believe. Yeah. And if you go out there and things are great. tell people, that, yes, <laughs> yeah. if you tell them that and they don't feel it, like things are great, uh, yeah, then you have to create a construct yeah. that works for you. You know, in 2012, in 2011, everybody was reading last rights over uh, Obama's presidency. And we set up a comparative race and we set up. That we define the terms of the 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 race around comparative race. Who, who you took an axe to Romney's head. <laughs> we call <laughs> that, that the, we co- we call that, that in refined company yeah. a comparative race. Yeah. But the point was, we could have taken an axe to his head in any number of ways. But we took an axe to his head in the one way that mattered, which is we asked people who is most likely to fight for the middle class. Right, right, yeah. right. And that, you know, they believed that Romney was more competent to run the economy. The the sort of overall economy. But when it came to who was going to be the best advocate Mm -hmm. for the middle class, they believed it was Obama. And that turned out to be the most important question. Sure. So, you know, I I think you have, there are nuances to this, just going out and saying, hey, we did so much and you got, you know, everything is so good and it's so much better. And people are sitting there. You owe us a vote because of all I did for you. Yeah. That that is a dead bang loser. He needs to set up a comparative race. And what I raised earlier was, they need to figure out with, with really, really uh, sophisticated research and thought how they want to set up that comparative. And then they've got to drive it every single day from now to November. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You never want an election to be an essay contest. You know, it's multiple <laughs> yes. choice. Do you want some warm kind of shitty porridge or do you want to get your head cut off? Pick A or B because <laughs> yeah. that's what's on the damn menu. And yeah. uh, when it's an essay question, you're screwed. Okay, yeah. well, we've solved all those problems. Speaking of questions, we we, we got some, right? <laughs> yeah, we have. Play the music. It's listener mailbag. <laughs> those are classic old jingles that have been resung. I love it. From my old Radio Free GOP days, and uh, they're, they're a big backstory to them. we got to add a few more. That's actually Mike's ringtone. So... Uh, <laughs> All right, we have a ton of questions. If you have a question for the hacks, send it to us at the mailbag, hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you can't get enough of this stuff, because this has even more, subscribe to the newsletter that uh, Brother Gibbs and I do. comes out twice a week. It's free by email. We cover a lot of fun stuff we don't get to on the podcast. Check it out, hacksontap.bulletin.com. And as you know, the runways of Paris and Milan have been electrified because finally the Hacks on Tap merchandise has arrived. So check it out online. Just go to our website, hacksontap.com. If you have a suggestion for merchandise, keep it clean. Uh, send it to us at that hacksontap uh, at gmail.com address, and we will check it out. And, yes, we're working on mugs. Okay, beer mugs or anything mugs. So question number one. <laughs> beer mugs. Dan, don't worry. Our mugs are not on the mugs, so... 
you won't be scaring the children. So yes, none of that. Get some, yeah. All right, so Mike Adisu asks, the pandemic has made remote work more widespread and people from blue states are moving to more rural areas, typically in red and purple states. Do you think this could materially impact the 2022 midterms and potentially the 2024 electoral college? I mean, it's a good question. I think I think the answer is maybe. I haven't done a full analysis of, of uh, you know, how the voter rolls have changed, et cetera. But look, every, you know, Georgia and Virginia and some of these states that have gone uh, red to blue and even, you know, blue to red the other way, it has happened very, very fast over the course of a few cycles. So I think the short answer to Mike is, yeah, it absolutely could make a difference. You know, Biden won Georgia by what, 11,000 votes and, t- and Michigan by a similar, similarly small number. And so everything on the margins makes a difference and people moving and changing demographics matter just as much as anything. Michigan was a little wider. Wisconsin was Wisconsin, uh, yeah. almost Super as tight. like 10,000, 20,000. I mean, we're talking, you know, that's that. And you know, it has happened. You're right. It tends to move slow. But New Hampshire used to be a Republican state, yeah. and then a whole bunch of good Democrats from Massachusetts Moved hated paying Democratic north. taxes. They moved five <laughs> miles north, and now it's a purple state. Yeah, it's, it is it is a really good point. It's something that people like me should be looking at. And when we do our analyses of what the voter rolls look like in August, September, as we head to you know voting time, I think we will. Murphy. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to be a million percent right, no matter what the question is. <laughs> someone, t- someone named Lincoln... And it, it may oh. be, yes, it may be old it Dave could talking be. to us from, from the beyond. Said, like me, he still votes in Illinois, but go ahead. Let's see what the if president that, wants. That never gets old. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I love it. <laughs> if the argument against eliminating the filibuster is because it would open the door for the GOP to pass all sorts of insane, irresponsible legislation, then why not, why not let them? Won't their lunacy? Uh, won't their lunacy will only make it that much easier to defeat at the polls? Defeat them at the polls. I assume he means and expedite their slide into oblivion. Well, it, it is. <laughs> it reminds me of the great scenario that a young congressman named Lloyd Benson suggested at the height of the Korean War, which was drop a bombs on the enemy. Generally, that feels good for an hour. But then there are consequences. So I guess this is the nuclear winner question. Would changing the Senate to a place where either party with 50 can do anything they want over time be a step forward or not? In the short term, emotionally, it's like, why can't our team win? We got 50%. Damn it, change the rules. Long term, the argument Manchin would make uh, and others, and I think privately even Biden, unless he changed his position out of frustration, is that the filibuster, for all its pain and frustration, forces some kind of partisan coalition building. Now, I don't think the price of an—the Senate was designed to slow stuff down. The House was where the drunken tavern was supposed to run wild. And I hate to destroy that design, although I take the point that the filibusters become— used as an extreme tool and there might be ways like make them stand on their heads and make it harder to do uh but uh i i think the net net would be worse from this so let me just respond to that because i don't even think you're four hundred and seventy-five thousand percent right <laughs> uh the, the the filibuster uh look i i was an institutionalist and for the longest time i agreed with your argument it has been so abused uh that it has distorted 
the process. Manchin, by the way, is a great argument against the need for a filibuster to force bipartisan cooperation because he right. single-handedly is stopping everything on his own, in his own party. John McCain was the one in a uh, under uh, reconciliation where Republicans only needed 50 votes. It was John McCain and and a couple of other Republicans who uh, protected the Affordable Care Act from being eliminated uh, under Republicans. What happens now is uh, you see these workarounds like reconciliation where, you know, these bills get loaded up. And instead of having a debate on the floor of the Senate, up or down on things like uh, 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 child care credit or, uh, uh, you know, the pre-K uh, universal pre-K or uh, paid family leave, uh, we never get to it. We never have honest debate on the Senate floor anymore because uh, of the filibuster. So uh, I think the worst thing the filibuster has done is it's made it hard to uh, for the institution to function. And I think the greatest threat to democracy right now, other than these overt attacks on it, is the perception that government can't get anything done that government can't solve problems, and the filibuster is standing in the way. So uh, I could give you about 10 other arguments, but I, I just disagree with you on this. Adisu, you can be the you can be the tiebreaker. I've changed my position personally on this, too. I was where you were, and now, you know, I also think times have changed, you know, and 40% of the Senate is now potentially representing, what, 30, 25% of the population. I mean, it is so counter-majoritarian as to be, I think just a total relic. So I'm where you are, David. I've changed my position on this. I think it, it I, I'd be fine with delay. I'd be fine with saying, okay, if we're going to filibuster, let's have like a three week debate, whatever, <laughs> you know, four week debate, but it can't be interminable forever. And you can just have, you know, 40% of the Senate stop everything in perpetuity, which is, which is what basically has been happening for a decade. <laughs> Anytime. There's I think it would make things worse. It's like, solving a blazing inferno with a terrible flood but we're, we're find out you know we'll see what they do i don't think Manchin's going to do it well, well let me just leave you this last thought we you know we don't want and the, this the system was set up to prevent a tyranny of the of the majority uh we don't right. we we can't live with a tyranny of the minority and that's what we have right now and uh the filibuster is an instrument uh, uh, you know, to enforce that. And uh, it's bad for the country. It's bad for democracy. But we'll have plenty of time to debate this <laughs> in the months and years to come. Mend it, don't end it. All right. <laughs> well, well, on that old chestnut from the yeah. Democratic Archives, Mr. Adisu, thank you so much for hacking out with us today. I will come back anytime you want me. This is fun. We, we'd love to have you. All right. Well, Happy New Year, Hacks, to all of you. Here yes. we are. A friend of mine asked me the other day, you, you think it could get worse? I'm like, I'm Irish. Of course it can. And it probably will. <laughs> but here's hoping I'm a million percent wrong on that one. And we're, we'll see what happens. And everybody have a great happy new year. Yeah. Well, it's going to be an interesting year ahead and look forward to talking to you guys many times about it. Good to see you. Talk to you soon. Take care.